Our church has been studying the Psalms of Ascent this summer, uh, which is Psalms 120 through Psalm 134, and each Sunday we're just taking a different psalm. These are psalms that celebrate and talk about the the pilgrimage that the, the Jews would take to Jerusalem every day. And really, it's a picture of our pilgrimage as Christians. And uh, we, we've just seen incredible applicability to our own lives. But today we're looking at Psalm 129. Let me read that psalm. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. But they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. With it, the reaper cannot fill his hands, nor the one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Some of you maybe uh, following, had followed this last week, the plight of uh, Christians in Mosul in northern Iraq, where last, uh, I mentioned this last Sunday, but um, where they were, Christians were told by ISIS, the, the terrorist army that's uh, in power there, but they were told by them, you, you know, you have choices. You can either convert to Islam, or you can pay the, the tax, or you can leave, or we can kill you. These are your choices. And so last weekend, en masse, uh, tens of thousands of Christians uh, fled Mosul. It's kind of hard to get your mind around that. It's just like, I mean, it just seems so surreal, so, so strange, so extreme. It's hard to imagine. And yet, the reality is that uh, there's a lots of oppression and evil in the world, and that Christians, and even non-Christians, have experienced oppression and persecution like that in many ways and in many places and still experience that today. In fact, Jesus warned us of this, didn't he? He told us that if we're going to follow him, that we need to be prepared to follow him and remember what he went through, that that he suffered, that he went to the cross as we just sang. And if we're going to walk in his footsteps, we have to know that God may call us towards suffering. So as we come to Psalm 129 this morning, this is a psalm that reflects upon the the experience of God's people when they are persecuted, persecuted. Uh, One of the great things about the psalms, I think we've been seeing this summer, is that the psalms help us think about all the experiences of life. You know, life is full of happiness, up times, down times, and, and, and different times are confusing. It's try to, we try to figure out how to experience and live life as Christians, and the Psalms help us kind of interpret life's experience through a theological and biblical lens. And Psalm 129, I think, particularly helps us think about the experience of persecution and oppression, especially religious experience and uh, experience of religious persecution and oppression. It, it's, it's a psalm about ex, uh, dealing with those in verse 5 who hate Zion, who hate God's people. So what I'd like to do this morning is just make three observations from this psalm that uh, hopefully will help us think about this issue as we encounter it, whether it's in the news far away or whether it's in our lives up close and personal in different ways, big and small. 
So here's, here's my three observations. Observation number one, this is kind of a simple one, and yet it's really important. Persecution happens. That's my first observation. Persecution happens. It is a reality, and we should not be surprised. We shouldn't like it, of course, but we shouldn't be surprised. It is a bit of a norm, not only because we're in a sinful and broken world, but as God's people, this is part of the experience of God's people all throughout the Bible. Look at the experience of persecution here in Psalm 129. It starts out in verse 1, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. So here you have the psalmist speaking for himself, but also, in a sense, letting his experience speak for the experience of all God's people, because he says, let Israel say. So, so whether individually or as a people, from, from my youth, so to speak, he says, this is, this is the way it's been. I've experienced this kinds of oppression. This is, this is something that is part of my story as I look back on my life. Verse 3 is rather intense. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. It's a rather gruesome image, isn't it? A person laying, just imagine a guy stretched out on the ground and someone else with a plow just grinding it down their back. I mean, it's It's gross. It's a really horrible image. But it captures, I, I think, at a very kind of visceral level, the, the, uh, the feeling of helplessness and despair when you're being ground down by people who are against you and opposed to you and persecuting you. That's what it feels like to have plowmen plowing your back and making their furrows long. It's an experience of hate, verse 5. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. And as you look at the, the story of God's people throughout the Bible, and that's what the Bible is, the Bible is a, 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 the story of God saving his people all, down through the ages. And, and as you look at that story, you see that persecution really was a part of God's people's experience. I mean, take Israel. This, you know, let Israel say, from my youth they have greatly oppressed me. You go back in Israel's youth to the early days when Israel was just a baby nation, when they were where did they start? They started in Egypt in slavery. They were oppressed. They were beaten and afflicted. Uh, they, they were whipped and, and punished by the Egyptians. Um, or, or think about um, different episodes in Israel's history where there were foreign oppressors coming in. And it's, it's a history littered with persecution and difficulty. Or think about some of the great heroes of the Old Testament. They didn't always have it easy. Think about David, the greatest, perhaps, king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. He ruled as king over Israel for 40 years. But for 30 years before that, he was oppressed. I mean, you know, as a young boy, his brothers didn't give him any respect. And then when he was finally anointed to be the next king, the current king, King Saul, didn't really like that. And, and so a lot of David's life before he became king was spent fleeing and hiding as a refugee in the desert. I mean, a lot of, of his story is him evading King Saul, who's trying to kill him and murder him. David is a suffering servant, a suffering king. Or think about Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, called down fire from heaven. I mean, this great man of God. And, uh, and yet King Ahab and King Jezebel wanted his hide. King Jezebel made death threats against him. He was a wanted man. If you were to go to the post office in Samaria, there would be his picture. Most wanted, 
Elijah. Or think about the greatest sufferer of all, the, the most uh, epitome of, of, of persecution person is Jesus Christ himself. I mean, from his infancy, King Herod was trying to find him and kill him. Throughout his ministry, opposed by the Pharisees and the religious leaders, hassled, questioned, tried to trip him up, plotted against. Throughout his life, constant opposition. The greater his ministry grew, the more people he touched, the the, uh, opposition escalated and ramped up. Until finally he was arrested in the middle of the night. And he was convicted by a sham trial. And he was tortured. And he was executed. And so the man at the center of our faith, whom we worship, who we say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I want to follow Jesus. Jesus says, okay, take up your cross. This is the way. So we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't look for persecution or pray for it to happen. But we shouldn't be surprised because this is the sto- part of the story. In fact, let me show you this passage. Put a bookmark here in Psalm 129. I want to show you what Jesus himself said. Jesus talked about this a lot, actually, but here's one particularly poignant moment. It's in John chapter 15. Look at John chapter 15, page 1069 in the Pew Bible. where Jesus gave us this warning. John chapter 15, verse 18, page 1069. Jesus said to his disciples, this was, now remember, this is like hours before he's about to die. Less than 24 hours, Jesus will be dead. And he tells his disciples in verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they would have obeyed your teaching also. So, Jesus told us, if we're going to follow him, if, if we're his, if he's chosen us out of the world, don't be surprised if the world's not our best buddy every time. That doesn't mean that every single person who's not a Christian hates every person who is a Christian. That's not what it's saying. But it's saying that the spirit of the world is diametrically opposed to the spirit of the kingdom of God. And the spirit of the world says, I'm God and I'm king and I can do with what my own life as I wish. And the kingdom of God says, Jesus is Lord. And those two are, they're not, they don't fit, they don't work together. And, and so at times that will spill over and express itself in the form of persecution and oppression. And Jesus told us that's what it would be like. Which made me think of, I said, well, do, do I really experience persecution today? Do we as American Christians, are we experiencing persecution? What, I mean, if this is kind of part of the story of God's people, to what extent have we experienced this? And, you know, I was like, how, do we experience persecution in America? I mean, how, how do you answer that? I think it's kind of one of those yes and no sort of answers, right? I, I mean, no, we don't in the sense that no one's telling me I have to leave the South Shore. <laughs> 
right? Nobody, I don't think I'm in imminent danger of being thrown in prison. We're not suffering persecution in a kind of hard sense the way that um, those Christians in Mosul did or, or like our Chinese brothers and sisters or uh, brothers and sisters in North Korea who sometimes go to prison camps because they're faithful to the gospel message. We're not going to a gulag. Um, it's not like brothers and sisters in parts of India where it's pastors might be subject to mob violence as the police turn a blind eye. We, we don't, we're not facing that kind of thing. Uh, we're not having spray-painted signs on our, our businesses and our houses targeting them for, for being burned. And yet, I think there is a kind of soft, you might call it persecution or oppression or, or opposition that, that we feel perhaps in our culture in different ways. And it, at certain times, it sort of pulses and surges under different circumstances. And, and I think it's, it tends to be more of a social pressure where to, to be outspoken about Jesus or even just being outspoken about right and wrong, hmm? you, you feel kind of a, this pressure, sort of a gag pressure against you so, so that you're very tempted and I'm very tempted to kind of not say certain things because I don't want to set people off. And, and, and so there's this kind of feeling like, I can't say that, we shouldn't say that, we shouldn't go there. And, and we feel that. And, and so it has a sort of social uh, edge to it. Um, I, I think that's where, where we experience it. So uh, those of you who are high school students here, maybe junior high students, you know, if, if you decide in school that you are going to follow Christ and that you're following Jesus isn't just Sunday morning, but you want it to affect your life and how you treat people and what you do. And as a result of that, you don't party. You don't drink and you don't do drugs and you're not sleeping with people and you're not going around swearing and being vulgar and, you know, all, all those things. I mean, chances are your sort of uh, portfolio of friends at school is going to be rather small. You're probably not going to be the most influential, popular liked person on campus. It, it's just you're, you're putting yourself in a, a limited category of people. And, and that's difficult. And you're not going to break in, and no one wants you to be a part of that. That's often how it is. Uh, if you're in the office place, and, you know, there's the gossip mill that just goes on, you know, every day, and it goes on and on, and, and you don't want to be a part of that. Or if one day at lunch you say, you know, I just don't think we should be talking about people like this. <laughs> Guess who gets talked about the second you leave the room? <laughs> you know, You're, you know. You, so, like, do we say something? Do we not say something? Like, guys, we, we shouldn't do this. I mean, you're gonna if if you're if your book group, you're a lady and you're in a book group, and they're like, what should we read next? Let's read Fifty Shades of Grey. Like, what do you do? Like, do you just not show up that month? Do you, do you put your hand up and say, I don't really want to read that? You know, why not? Well, it's it's pornography. <laughs> You know, we don't want men watching pornography. Why should we be reading pornography? Right? So, you know, but like, do you say that? Or will people be like, oh, judgmental Christian, shoving her? You know what I'm saying? So, so I, I think that a lot of the pressure comes not so much because if you say, I follow Jesus, people are like, we hate Jesus. But I think it often comes more where we say, because I follow Jesus, 
This is the life he's calling us to live. This is righteousness. Like Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are you when people persecute you for righteousness' sake. And sometimes it's for righteousness' sake. Some of you have been following uh, the, the trials of Gordon College recently up on the North Shore. I don't know if you've heard about that, but basically a, to, to sum it up, uh, there's a new executive order from the White House saying that any, anyone who receives federal funds, any business or you know, school or whatever, in their hiring practices, they can't discriminate against gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender individuals. That's difficult for a Christian college because most Christian colleges have a statement of conduct that says anyone who works here or students here uh, are, are going to abide by a certain lifestyle that's defined by the Bible that's always been defined by the Bible that way. It's nothing new for Christians. And so it says, hey, you know, if, if I'm going to be a worker here, I'm going to be a student here, I'm not going to use drugs, and I'm not going to engage in extramarital sex, and I'm not going to engage in homosexual behavior, because these things are clearly taught in Scripture. So the president of Gordon College uh, signed a letter, along with a lot of other people, signing letters, just asking the administration, can we please just have an exemption from this so that we can just do what we've always done and practice what we've always practiced since schools receive federal funds? And, and you, know, there, you know, you can have an interesting debate about the role of federal funds and Christian institutions and all that, but what's interesting to me is the firestorm of vitriol that descended upon Gordon College because they simply said, can we have an exemption? You know, from the Boston Globe to the city of Salem saying, we don't want any Gordon College things here anymore. And, and they sort of cut off the college to social media and the, just the acid comments and students signing petitions against this. I was like, what? <laughs> you know? But, but just the, the, the hatred. You know, who's the haters, right? The, the hatred and the anger that was coming out. And uh, it, it's really, it's, it's rather remarkable. But should we be surprised that if we stand for righteousness' sake, that at some point we're going to rub the culture the wrong way? And, and today that issue is the issue. Maybe next week it'll be another issue. I mean, who knows? But, but why should we be surprised? This is what it costs sometimes to stand for the name of Jesus. And I think it does surprise us because I think sometimes we think as Christians that, that we can somehow overcome this by just packaging the gospel better. You know, if we just package it right, if we could just get some PR firm to help us with our whole approach, you know, maybe we could like become more cool or more trendy or more, you know, with it. Or if we have some technology, it'll make us look savvy and not, you know, puritanical or something. We've just got to accept the fact that we belong to another kingdom, and it has different rules, <laughs> and it's the kingdom of God, and the world doesn't like God's kingdom. And at different ways and at different times, there will be conflicts between those. We just need to accept that and embrace it because Psalm 129, oppression and persecution happens. But that leads me to the second observation here in Psalm 129. If you want to go back there, page 614 again. Second observation from this psalm. The second thing this psalm teaches us is that 
God saves and vindicates his persecuted people. That's the second observation. The first one is that a persecution, oppression happens. Second observation, God saves and vindicates his oppressed and persecuted people. Verse 2, they've, a greatly, they've greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Verse 3, plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long, but the Lord is righteous. The nations may not be righteous. Governments may not be righteous. People may not be righteous, but the Lord is righteous. And he has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. So our hope is that God will vindicate his people. I mean, that, that's basically our stance in the face of persecution. You know, because when persecution hits, you get the flight, fight or flight instinct, right? Do we flee? Do we run away from it? Or do we fight? I mean, some of us, you know, we're fighters. We're like, all right, you push me, I punch you. You threaten me, I sue you. You know, you come at me with this, I come at you with that. And, and we, we have that instinct in these things. But, but the call here is not to face persecution with our own version of a culture war. It's to simply stand firm, be faithful, love people, pray for people, speak the truth, and then let God take care of vindicating us. And that takes patience and it takes endurance. But it's God who wins the victory, not our own strength or ingenuity. And that's how it is, again, down through the story. There's the Israelites oppressed in Egypt, but eventually the Israelites are standing on the edge of the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is under the water because God in his time vindicated his people. Or think about David. You know, when David was being hunted in the wilderness by King Saul, there's, if you go back and read the story, some of you are familiar with this, but there were two opportunities where David could have killed King Saul, where God just kind of like gave King Saul right into his hands. And David said, I won't touch the Lord's anointed. That's wrong. God's going to take care of this. And in due time, Saul was dead. David was king. Or think about Elijah, who was threatened by Ahab and Jezebel, the king and queen of Israel. How does that story end? Elijah is riding a chariot up to heaven, and Jezebel, it's gross, but she gets tossed out of a window and eaten by dogs. It's really gross. Chariot of fire, eaten by dogs. What about Jesus? Crucified, buried, raised forever and ever. Jesus says, I was dead and now I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. Jesus said after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Paul says, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, that's how the story ends. And that's our paradigm. The cross, then the crown. The suffering, then the victory. The faithful endurance, and then the vindication. But it's a divine vindication. And so this is not a call for Christians to take up arms and establish a, a, a Christian caliphate here, so to speak. This, you know, and any time in church history where Christians have forgotten this, because Christians have been oppressive to others. You look in church history where Christians have taken up the force of the state and the force of weapons to enforce 
Christian religion, it's a disaster (laughs) because it has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God comes from heaven and through the power of the Holy Spirit, not through our might. And, and so, yeah, we stand firm, and, but, but when it comes to advancing our religion, we don't use force. We just preach the gospel and suffer and allow the power of the gospel to do the work. So we have to trust God. Look at this passage. Check this out. It's in the book of Revelation. I shall not give you a page number. It's in the back. <laughs> Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And this is, uh, this is the part of Revelation where there's seven letters written by Jesus to seven churches. The resurrected Jesus is speaking to these churches, which is pretty cool. And he writes to one of the churches, verse 8, the church of Smyrna, which is a persecuted church, a suffering church. And he says to them, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who was the first and last who died and came to life again. Again, I was dead, I'm alive, God raised Christ. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. They're afflicted, they're poor. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They're experiencing persecution in that particular city from the synagogue. Other cities, they're experiencing persecution from the, the Gentiles. Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. How would you like to hear that message from Jesus? I wish Jesus would talk to me. Okay, what if he said, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer? What? I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. So this is how you overcome. You overcome by being faithful, speaking the truth in love, not being aggressive and hostile, but lovingly, faithfully. This is the gospel. This is the truth. And then be willing to stand firm and suffer even to the point of death. That's how you overcome. That doesn't sound like overcoming. That sounds like being a doormat. Well, the kingdom of God works in funny ways. And our Lord saved us by going to the cross. And so we gain the victory. We overcome by sticking to the truth, loving people, praying for people, and then letting God give us the victory. You know what's so great about that is? Is that when you're persecuted, it frees you, it frees you from feeling bitter about it. Because if I know that God is the one who's going to vindicate and God's the one who's going to set all the records straight someday, I don't have to be upset at people. I can love my enemies. I can pray for those who persecute me, like Jesus said. I can be gracious and kind to those who are not being gracious and kind to me. I, I, can, have, I can have my rights trampled on and, and not feel like I want to go bananas. <laughs> I can just say, you know, God is going to vindicate. My job is to stay faithful Love, pray, and preach the gospel and respond with prayer and love for my my enemies, whoever they may be. Because God wins the victory. And that leads, just quickly, Psalm 129, the final observation. First one. The first one is persecution happens. The second one, God vindicates and saves his persecuted people. And then the third one is God judges those who hate Zion. 
God judges the persecutors. And that's verses five through eight. Verses five through eight is a, a prayer for God to bring justice on those who hate Zion. This is a prayer for judgment to finally come. This is, uh, in theological terms, it's called an imprecation. It, it's sort of a, a strong prayer, it, but, it, but it comes from the heart of a person who's longing to see God's purposes prevail in a broken world. And so he says, verse 5, may all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof which withers before it can grow. With it the reaper cannot fill his hands, nor the one who gathers fill his arms. Uh, In those days they had flat roofs in in that that culture, and they were built with uh, sticks and logs, and then on top of that was like a mud-packed surface that was hard, and grass would grow up there. So you'd have, so kind of like some of us in our gutters that we haven't cleaned. <laughs> you know, it's like grass growing out of our gutters. Um, yeah, grass on the roof. But it's not the kind of grass that you're going to go and reap a big harvest from because it's going to die because it's just on a little bit of dirt in the roof. And so he's like, that's what they're like. They seem like they're way up there and they're growing and, oh, they're, they're doing so well. Grass on the roof. You know, oppressive governments that are trampling Christians and other people underfoot. Grass on the roof. Don't worry about it. God will have the last word. And then verse 8 is probably the most troubling one. May those who pass by not say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. It's, it's a cursing. Essentially, that's a, a, a one way of saying, you'll be cursed by saying, you will not be blessed. No one will say that to you. Beware, beware of harassing and persecuting God's church. Beware of opposing and speaking ill of and doing ill toward the blood-bought people of Jesus Christ. God doesn't like that. And he will defend his people. He will do it, not us. He'll take care of that. But it's a bad place to be. But here's the good news, is that God loves and saves people. God even loves and saves persecutors. That's the great news of the gospel, is that as we stand and proclaim the gospel fearlessly, despite the consequences, we we worship a God who's in the business of saving people, even people who hate his people. He, He even saves persecutors. Jesus died on the cross. His back was plowed by those whips. And that plowed back was pressed up against the cross and he suffered and died. He was cursed. People who walked by weren't saying, God bless you. They were saying, God curse you. He, he was suffered and died on the cross so that sinful people like us and haters could be forgiven, could be forgiven and reconciled to God. That's the amazing news in the gospel. You know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, one of my favorite conversion stories, you guys probably know this one too, but it's, it's the story of a persecutor who got saved. His name was Saul. Not Saul the king, but Saul the, the, Saul, the, uh, the persecutor who was persecuting Christians. And he was like a Christian hunter. And he would travel around trying to find Christians and throw them in jail. And he was on a journey to find some Christians and throw them in jail and maybe even kill them. And, and on the road, Jesus confronted him. The risen Jesus appeared to him in a vision and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, Lord, who are you? He said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And, and Saul went from being a Christian hunter to a Christian maker. 
He went from being a church destroyer to a church planter. He went from being a Christian killer to a Christian who was killed by Nero for his faith. God took him from here to there. God saves the pers- even persecutors. And, and so when, when the persecution comes and things get bad and people get vitriolic and things get intense, the more intense they get, the more bold we need to become with our faith. In, in those times of persecution, we need to pull out the big guns. And you know what our big guns are? Prayer and the gospel of Jesus. We just need to be bold with the gospel. And, and the worse it gets... The great thing about persecution is, is that at least it, it just kind of frees you to just be bold. Because you're like, well, what do I got to lose? You know, I'm being persecuted. I might as well just be bold. Here's the gospel. And when you're bold with the gospel, God does amazing things. As Paul said, Paul, who used to be Saul the persecutor, as Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the what? Power. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are amazing. There is no one like you who could win such a victory through such a defeat. You, Lord Jesus, hung on a cross, and in that moment of utter humiliation and defeat, you won the whole battle. Lord, you defeated our sins, you defeated the the grave, you defeated the devil at the cross. And Lord, now through your defeat on the cross and resurrection, you offer salvation and forgiveness to people like us, people filled with gossip and impurity, people filled with evil desires and people who, um, people who are haters like us, Lord, people who've hated you, and you forgive us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for how you change us. Thank you, Lord, for the lives here that you've changed in this room, people who are living destructive lives and have now been forgiven and reconciled to you. Oh, God, I pray that you would make us a happy church. Help us not to be a church that's cowering down under societal pressure or that's fretting over increased persecution in various places. Help us, Lord, to be full of joy, to be full of confidence in the gospel. God, I pray for teenagers here that they would be unashamed Christians in their schools and with their friends, that they would be bright lights. God, I pray for every mom here and every worker here and every dad and Every, every person who's uh, out there in the world Monday through Friday earning a living, Lord, I pray that they would be a bright light and they would be fearless to speak the truth of the gospel and that they would do it in a joyful and loving way that would invite people to know the Savior. God, I pray that you'd make us unafraid, that you'd help us to shrug off persecution and oppression and know that it's just part of the, part of the deal as we embody Christ. God, I pray for Gordon College, that you would encourage and strengthen President Lindsay there and help him to stand strong. And Lord, I pray that you would use the the difficulties in that college and in other colleges, Lord, to refine that school and purify it and make it an even more sharp instrument in your hand for the kingdom of God in New England and around the world. And God, I pray for that for our church. Help us to to be filled up with the Holy Spirit, to be filled up with joy, to be filled up with the gospel and with love as we speak the truth. 
Lord, help us to be humble and not arrogant, but compassionate and truthful and direct. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.